1: Welcome into the QB Sco Show. This is episode forty-seven, brought to you by the fine folk at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. You can follow me on Twitter at Michael Kist NFL. That's K I S T. And as always, here to break down the upcoming enemy quarterback. Take a look back at Carson Wentz for some performance review. Is quarterback one in our hearts, in our minds? He is Mark Schofield. Mark. Happy New Year! I was almost, I was concerned that twenty twenty is off to a weird start because neither of us have a touch of the Yankee flu today after New Year's Eve as we record on the on the first yeah. of the year. How you doing, brother?
0: I- I'm doing well, and I was actually in my notes because I scripted out the beginning of the show. I had, this is the first Cubisco show of the new year. You know it's a big one, since Michael and I are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed <laughs> on the, well, technically, it's still the morning of the New Year's Day. Yeah. I mean- Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Vegas didn't have the good odds on us, like, getting up and doing a show New Year's Day. <laughs> Like, so if you were bet against us, I'm sorry, I've got some bad news because it is New Year's Day. It is January 1st, 2020, and we're here, we're ready to go. Neither one of us or the Yankee flu. We're showered, we're shaved. I've got the Wentz jersey on, we're ready to go. Let's go. And, and to pull the curtain back on the show for a moment, Michael, you know this, many of the listeners might not. We record this over Skype with the video running, <laughs> as we found that makes for a better finished product. And each and every time Michael runs through the intro, I'm usually dancing or gyrating heinously awkwardly, I might add, (laughs) on my end to try to keep the energy up. But every time I do that, my mind flashes to the beginning of Love Actually, as Bill Nye in the role of the aged rocker Billy Mac struggles to record that horrific cover of Love Is All Around, and perhaps one day I'll just blurt out the opening lines of that song in my flagrant Boston accent for all to enjoy, (laughs) but I digress. Now, as always, we do begin on a historical note, and in prepping for the show, I wanted to go down the historical floods path, hmm. for a reason that will become evident shortly, I'm sure. But those always come with body counts, and I didn't really want to start 2020 on such a downer, <laughs> so I turned to space, Ooh. which again, I think will become evident pretty soon. Now, conveniently enough, and perhaps a window into just how rock and New Year's Eve was at Casa de Schofield, shortly after the ball dropped, my Roman nose was buried in American Moonshot, a book about the space race by historian Douglas Brinkley that I've referenced before. But believe it or not, I've made progress, and we are now removed from the infant stages of the U.S. space program into the Mercury program itself. And last night I was reading about Virgil Gus Grissom and his Mercury 7 mission. And those of you who have either read or watched the right stuff that movie are probably familiar with the story. But he was supposed to be the first into space, but hay fever grounded him. But on July 21st, 1961, he made the foray into suborbital space. But it also highlighted just how thin the razor's edge for success and failure in space is. Hmm. Now, reading from Brinkley, while he was in space... He radioed down about his space experience, Grissom did, and he said, I can see the coast, he radioed back, but I can't identify anything, which is just fascinating to think about. You're an astronaut in an infant program, but you don't know what the coast looks like. I just <laughs> that was great. But here we get into reentry, which is always a dicey proposition. Reentry went smoothly for Liberty Bell seven, with a craft traveling thirty miles per hour faster than it had Shepard's Freedom Seven. But once the capsule splashed down in the Atlantic, a technical malfunction caused the side door to blow open, sending seawater gushing in, the same type of disaster that had killed Victor Prather. Grissom felt the capsule begin to sink. Without waiting for the two Navy helicopters assigned to retrieve him, he scrambled out. Minutes of life or death drama ensued. When the choppers arrived, Grissom began trying to help the first one attach a cable to the capsule, which was also supposed to be retrieved, but ocean water started to enter in his spacesuit through the open collar. (laughs) Panicking. Grissom waved for help, but the airman on the helicopter misconstrued his message. Fortunately, the crew of the second helicopter recognized his predicament and quickly lowered a rescue hoop, hoisting him to safety. Abandoned in the effort to lift the water-filled Liberty Bell 7, both helicopters returned to a nearby Navy ship. When asked by a journalist how he felt, Grissom replied, Well, I was scared a good portion of the time. I guess that is a pretty good indication. <laughs> now, Michael, putting the thin razor's edge of success and failure that we see both in space travel and in the NFL aside, you probably know why. You probably know what I'm driving at. When I was thinking about both spacing and flood, mm. why do you think I had those concepts on my mind getting ready for this show?
1: Is that because uh, some of, some of the Eagles' staples include spacing and or flood? Am I right on that?
0: You're right. And it also is because- some of the Seahawks staples yeah. also include yes. Space It and Flood. So I, I assume we'll talk about those concepts as we get rolling, but
1: happy to be here as always. With Flood, the reason that I say it's an Eagle staple, and it, and it wasn't for a little bit, and I was thinking while you were talking about you know the ocean water rushing in, I'm thinking of Carson Wentz from weeks you know 11 and 12 You know needing yeah. to be rescued and pulled out and eventually gets things right, and not only him – But I felt that Doug Peterson, Mike Rowe struggled as much as Carson Wentz did in those games as well. And we broke the film down. We watched the Seattle game. We're like, this is all slant flat. Like that was their staple at the time. This is all condensed. This is a horizontal only offense since then. I really feel like the Eagles have found a good balance in what they want their offense to be, still trying to take the vertical shots despite lacking the skill players where those will come open more more often than not. I mean, you're talking about a severely depleted Eagles team from a skill position perspective that has been able over the last four weeks during their wins to produce 16 explosive plays which ties for ninth in the NFL you would not expect that when you look at the players that Carson Wentz has had to deal around him but a lot of credit goes to not only Wentz but to the offensive scheme as well you mentioned flood you know they had like that three level flood concept where they find Deontay Burnett me and Solak talked about it on the Kist and Solak review show off that play action let the Bronco buck getting Wentz on the move I felt was big for him and has been big for the Eagles success because Wentz is fantastic on the move throwing the ball Very accurate gives him time to survey the field and also allows those receivers that struggle to separate more time to separate. It's easy to couple the cover the Eagles receivers and tight ends for two seconds, but when you have to do it for five or six, it becomes a whole different ball game. And Wentz has the arm to make any of those throws down the field, no matter where they are. We saw it on the touchdown to Perkins as well. So a lot of different things that that was going through my mind as you went through the historical reference there as it relates to the Eagles. But do you agree with me that this offense feels opened up as far as what they're trying to do and and has a better mix not only from the quick game but from you know stretching the intermediate and deep areas of the field as well
0: I, I certainly do and I can I just say I'm so glad you brought up that play the, the sort of deep shot, the one where they got him on the move to the right, because yeah. I, I thought, look, we skirt around the topic of aggression at the quarterback position often, but I think it's important to understand that there's a balance to aggression that you need to play this position. And that was one of my favorite plays just from Wentz, take the concept aside, which we can talk about, but he has both the shallow and the intermediate crosser open yeah. when he gets to the edge and he doesn't throw him. And you might think, look, it's a first and 20, you take what you could get on first and 20. You get into a sort of manageable. Maybe it's a second and 10, maybe it's a second and 12 situation now. He was appropriately aggressive in that moment, and there is such a fine line, again, to this concept of that fine line between failure and success, between being overly aggressive and being too conservative. You have to like balance it, and I thought that play where he gets to the outside, he has the shallow, he has the intermediate, they're both there from him. He can throw either one of them, he waits to see that little double-move-type corner route from Burnett. It was just a great example of being appropriately aggressive in a moment because you might say, look, take what you can get, get it into a manageable situation. But he said, no, I see the coverage in front of me. I know this route's going to be open. I'm going to take my shot on it. And he's rewarded with a huge play in the moment to get him from a first and 20 in their own 27 to a first and 10 at the Giants 32. Like that was a massive play at that moment and it was an aggressive play from Wentz. And it sort of does fit in with what you've said about their offense generally. They have opened it up. They have even with some of these guys that you can call them practice squad guys or reserves or whatever. They've said, look, you know, we're going to run the offense and forget about the players we have. Forget about the names on the back of the jersey we're just going to run these plays because mm. it gives us the best chance to be successful and that plays a perfect example of it
1: you know when we talk about that play i thought of the joe thomas tweet from after the college football playoff game with ohio state and yeah. clemson and this was great because justin fields ends up throwing an interceptions that ends the season for ohio state but the read was open there was a miscommunication with the wide receiver who thought that they were activating a scramble drill he ends up breaking it to the outside you know fields thinks he's going to the post he doesn't end up being there but the this is what joe thomas said he says quote as a quarterback if your first read is open for a touchdown you throw it you'd never look to your check down first unless you're a quarterback who plays scared but a quarterback who plays like that wouldn't have his team in the college football playoff because his yeah. team would stink and i think yeah. as we talk about this play that's a perfect example of that from whence he had the shallow he had the intermediate on the three-level flood which i loved but he ends up throwing the big one to deontay burnett and that and that's risky too like Deontay Burnett hadn't had a reception or anything, hadn't done anything for the Eagles yet. But having that trust and adding Deontay Burnett to the Carson circle of trust was a big thing. And I think that's what you're seeing from Carson now, trusting his receivers more, being cautiously aggressive, aggressive enough at certain spots, cautious in other spots to where he's taking care of the football. Overall, I mean, you look at what this guy's done over the past four games, and he's got seven touchdowns no interceptions. He's looked excellent. Now it's weird because, and I said this on Twitter the other day, and, I, and I'm wondering if you agree, but like from, from a pure evaluation standpoint, just talking about on the field stuff, we're, we're taking out, you know, the leadership and the X factor stuff and whatnot, just from the X's and O's, like this is how I felt like Wentz played in this game. I would very easily take a stretch from week one to week six than I would from week 13 to week 17, just from an execution standpoint. The problem is those games in weeks one to week six include a loss against, you know, Atlanta, where they had a game winning drop. And he played poorly that first half, but like excellently in the second half and put him in a position to win. They should have won that game. You look at the Detroit game where I thought yeah. Wentz played really, really well, and there were two drops for a touchdown in that game, including the key one to J. Jaw as well. So that colors things. You look at the Minnesota game where he had thrown one pass in the first quarter before the Eagles are down ten to nothing. Defense gives up 38 points. Wentz was very close multiple times in that game to pulling the Eagles either within to a tie or within to a very close game, and the execution otherwise failed. So there's a lot of different things that changes the narrative. The way you talk about a quarterback, but again, it cannot be overstated what Wentz has done with this ragtag group of characters in the end of the season. So I think he's playing solid ball. I think the people that thought that Carson Wentz was the main problem from weeks one to six, Chris Long said it. He goes, "You can. It's very obvious to tell when you're watching it when you're watching a football team if the quarterback is the problem. Carson Wentz wasn't the problem then. He's not the problem now. And I think we're finally putting to bed some of those leadership questions that have plagued him in the past.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. That's why it's sort of. High- hard to put, you know, which stretch do you believe was the better one. Right. I think you're right in the sense that the execution, like if this were a college quarterback we were studying, you know, we were sort of projecting his draft prospects and say, where would he end up? You might be more impressed with the on the field from the earlier stretch yeah. like you laid out. You might have said, look, you know, if you get this guy in the NFL, he's going to be successful. And that guy might be sort of, dare we say, the Mitch Trubisky. <laughs> <laughs> kind of prospect but the second stretch of the season guy is the deshaun watson right right it's the guy that's willing his team to win it's the guy that's in the national championship game against alabama getting helicoptered by reuben foster on a third down mm. and bouncing right back up and the defense is just like what are we going to do to knock this guy out he's invincible he's yeah. drago we can't beat him yeah and which guy do you want being your team's quarterback? You know, the guy that is going to put himself on the line, that is going to will his team to victory or the guy that is going to end up having vapor lock when he can't read Carl flat by his fourth season in the college football – in the National Football League. And so we could talk about Trubisky and of course we were going to sneak that in. But, (laughs) you know, Wentz – do I want to go as far as to say he's had the second best quarterback performance this season as Orlovsky said this week? Right. I don't know if we could go that far because there's a guy we're going to talk about in a minute that might have a claim to that mantle as well. But it's hard not to be impressed. And I think even the members of the anti ones tribe, the Prescott Truthers or whomever, have to admit that what we've seen over the past couple of weeks in a variety of must-win games is nothing short of incredible. And if you're an Eagles fan, if you had any questions or doubts or lingering fears that maybe this guy wasn't it, those are dead. Bury them and move on, because this guy is your guy.
1: Foles versus when stuff is dead. Uh, is this Carson's team? Stuff is dead. It is his team now. As I said earlier on the week, that is massive. And like you said, I don't care how you rank him. I don't care if you second. I don't have him as the second most impressive quarterback performance on the year either, as Orlovsky done. I thought I thought he was a little bit hyperbolic with that. Yeah. At the end of the day. Am I concerned about the franchise quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles moving forward? Heck no. No. Not no. even, not even close to it. So a lot of different teams are going to be scrounging for quarterbacks this offseason. The Eagles don't have that problem. And that's, that's a fantastic thing moving forward. All right. So we talked about some Carson Wentz. We're going to get to our upcoming enemy evaluation of the Eagles opponent. That's going to be Russell Wilson. That's coming up next here on the QB SCO show. And we are back here on the QB Sco Show episode 47, SB Nation, Bleeding Green Nation, Michael Kist here with Mark Schofield. We are not hungover, shockingly, as we Shocker. record. because our marriages are fine. That's right, and that's why no, our marriages are fine. That's why they're fine. <laughs> so let's get into the upcoming enemy opponent for the Philadelphia Eagles. And of course, here in this playoff game, we're talking about Seattle Seahawks quarterback, Russell Wilson. Let's run through some stats and analytics, and we'll start with PFF, who have him ranked as their top-ranked quarterback per-grade of ingrained starters, beating their 50% threshold. He is tied for fifth in adjusted completion percentage, also tied for fifth in balls over 20 yards in the air, and is second in deep ball frequency, so he throws it deep a ton. And he has one of the prettiest and most accurate deep balls in the league. Under pressure, he's 7th in adjusting completion percentage and 4th in quarterback rating when under fire. He makes some of his best throws when he is in the chaos. Dude was born in the darkness. The Seahawks are having him use play action at the 10th highest rate where he's throwing for 9.4 yards per attempt. That ranks 5th. For a 124.4 quarterback rating, which is second in the league, and that goes you know into one of his best assets being his legs. So 31 touchdowns through the air this year with five interceptions. Wilson would absolutely be my MVP this year if not for the emergence of the wonderful Lamar Jackson. Wilson is an elite quarterback playing elite ball that has been there, done that in the playoffs, which I think gives him an, a distinct advantage over some of these quarterbacks like Wentz. Like Roppolo, like Josh Allen, that haven't been in these same pressure-packed situations and games before. Mark, what else can you say about Russell Wilson?
0: You can't. And sort of the PF number PF numbers really sort of illustrate it. And I do want to start with the under pressure numbers because there's even more to it. The mm. Adjusted completion percentage, 7th in the league of 66.7%. The NFL rating of 893 like you illustrated there. 10 touchdowns, 2 interceptions, (laughs) 1,217 passing yards when under pressure. That's ridiculous, okay? There is an argument to be made and it is fair in a sense that some of the pressure numbers are of his own creation. Yeah. there are times when he sort of has a read, doesn't pull the trigger because, like you said, he's a man born and forged in the fire, like he loves the chaos. And that's when he plays perhaps some of his best ball, the the ridiculous throws to Lockett at week 16 and the the Rams Thursday night or earlier this season that we raved about on this show back before the Eagles and the Seahawks met in the regular season. That crazy stuff comes under pressure situations. But I think the thing to keep in mind, and I know we're just going to get into the how do you contain him because mm. you can't really stop him it makes no sense to me to blitz him like i i think you can't blitz this guy because if you do you're playing right into what he does yeah especially under pressure especially mm-hmm. with legs the other thing is you don't need to uh, masked in all of this stuff about russell wilson is they also hit in fact or maybe it's not so hidden their offensive line is bad yeah Like, you go back and you watch the Week 16 game against Arizona game, which they lost. They couldn't protect him at times. And they would just get in pressure with four. Hmm. They would do some stunts at times. They would do some twists at times. The right side of their offensive line, it seems like if you throw a text, a tackle, end exchange stunt at them, they can't change it. They can't you know, pass it off well. Mm. You're going to get free rushers at him. You will be able to get pressure with four against him and drop seven into coverage and sort of take away some of their throwing lanes. That's, I think, the way you've got to go about attacking him. Like, if you blitz him, you're dead. Hmm. And the pressure numbers bear that
1: out. That's interesting because our friend Jaws, friend of the show, put up something on Twitter the other day that I found interesting and, and wanted to discuss this with you. He put up a poll about blitzing Russell Wilson, and he says, quote, live by it, die by it. Seattle quarterback Russell Wilson has been blitzed 249 times, resulting in 28 sacks this season, both most in the NFL, but he's thrown 14 touchdowns versus the blitz. Second best in the NFL. Nah. Should the Eagles come after Wilson by pl- or, or play coverage? And he continues by saying, by the way, Wilson has a 110.6 passer rating when teams don't blitz him and base rush. Second best in the NFL. There's 17 touchdowns there. One interception. Unquote. So, Mark, in thinking about this, and I was thinking, you're dealing with a, a quarterback that's well-equipped to deal with pressure, as we talked about, well-equipped to extend plays and exploit gaps in rush lanes. And I was thinking, okay, well, maybe blitzing is the only way you can clog those lanes and contain him. That said, the Eagles did find success with Malcolm Jenkins and others in Green dog situations. Malcolm Jenkins, for example, and I put this up on the Twitter timeline if you want to see the video of this for an example, but he had two sacks in that game. And what I mean by Green dog is they put Jenkins. Shanks on a running back. And if the running back stays in, in to protect, Jenkins has the green light to go and get him. They also put him in two-on-one funnel situations where either Bradham or Jenkins can take the running back and they're on either side. So if the running back releases to the right, the defender on the right takes him, the other guy comes on a blitz and vice versa. They did this with success against the Seahawks. So you're bringing late blitzers that kind of go into that stunt deal, which the Eagles have increased uh, the the manner in which or the volume in which they are stunting against other teams. I mean, the Brandon Graham sack against the Giants is a perfect example of a three-man stunt that the Eagles could use to flash an escape lane to Russell Wilson and then take it away with a blitzer. But I do believe that whether you blitz or not, you have to have a plan and that if that blitz is coming, then it needs to be kind of accompanied with a spy slash green dog that keeps a special eye on on Wilson would you agree with a lot of like that's the way to kind of get after him
0: yeah I I think that's a great approach I mean you know because if you go straight up spy on him he's similar to Lamar in the sense that He's more athletic than the guys you're going to use to spy him, whether it's Jenkins, whether it's Bradham, like whomever. Mm. So I think the idea of a spy coupled with a dog that's going to force him one way or the other and restrict some of his Russian escape lanes—that's a smart approach, I think, to take. I think sort of all-out blitzes, like I think you have to put those to sort of to the side. Mm. And it is a pick-your-poison thing because he, if he does have time, like the numbers Jaws pointed out, friend of the show, he's going to pick you apart too. <laughs> I mean, so it's also, I think. Do you want him to hit you on one big play or knife you to pieces with 14 of them? Mm. And I think it's sort of similar to a Mahomes type of game plan where you want to make him earn it, make him have a 14-play drive because at one point maybe you get him. If you blitz and you don't get home, the band's playing and they go DK Metcalf for 90 yards <laughs> and your offense is back on the field. That's another thing I think we need to talk about is DK Metcalf. Ooh. Like, man – He's developing. For all the people that thought, look, he wouldn't be able to contribute, bad three-cone, can't turn, whatever, you can have that dude run three routes, a post, a go, and a comeback, and he's going to get open. The comebacks he was running against San Francisco, against Arizona, those are scary to see because (laughs) – like the separation he gets, it, it it's so scary as a defensive back because you know he's faster than you in yeah. most cases. So you got to respect the vertical. And they're running comebacks at like 20, 25 yards. <laughs> and at that point as a corner, you're 20 yards downfield. You're thinking, there's no way he's doing anything else. He's going. Yeah. And then he stops and he breaks back and you're eight yards downfield because you're trying to keep pace with this guy. Like those are some scary routes. The other thing I thought was scary from an Eagles fan perspective, his wavelength... With Wilson in the scramble situations situations, oh. it's underrated. They're simpatico, man, and that's impressive to see from a rookie. You want to talk about circle of trust? I've been, <laughs> you know, terrified and screaming about circles of trust from my team, which surprisingly is playing this week too. Yeah, but we could move on from that one. <laughs> um, you know, circle of trust is huge. These guys, Metcalf and Wilson, are on the same page early. It's impressive to see Metcalf's scary.
1: You mentioned Metcalf on those deep comebacks, and you're thinking, okay, like who cares if the guy can't turn? The guy runs a four three, and he's huge, so yeah. he's eating cushion quickly, getting into your blind spot, and then even if you are close, the dude is an ox and can escort you up the field and create yeah. separ- separation that way too. And I agree. Like w- when the Eagles were about to play the the Seahawks in Week 12, I remember saying, look. Darby can stay with this guy from a speed perspective, but the the number one, the ball skills aren't there for Darby. Wilson's going to throw it to him anyway. They they're, yeah. they're not going to care. He trusts this guy and that trust has only blossomed since we last talked about it. So that concerns me. Let's kind of talk about going into the rest of the passing game. You mentioned the staples at the top of the show, you know, the spacing, the flood. The Eagles are a heavy cover 3, cover 1 type team. What do you expect to see from the Seahawks that can put stress on the Eagles? secondary, and a lot of their coverage schemes.
0: You know, I think, look, cover one, cover three teams, you are going to see a lot of that flood stuff. And they love to do it, obviously, off of boot action. You know, they will get Wilson onto the edge. They will give him that three-level read. And that really stresses those single high schemes, cover one, cover three, because, you know, that's what they're designed to be. You know, when you've got a three-level read, shallow, intermediate, and, you know, deep route, that's tough to cover from a cover three standpoint. The you know, other thing they like to do—they love double outs, Omaha, whatever you want to call it—that mm. also sort of stresses cover three. You know, because it stresses that curl flat defender. Now you've got two people getting there. You can do some man stuff against it, when you've got Lockett in the slot, perhaps he's going to sometimes beat that slot man coverage defender. You know, another thing that I saw that I think is going to be a problem is, let's face it, everybody's favorite play they four verticals out of three by one yeah you know they love doing that you know he's got the bender to choose from he can use his eyes but they will often have a shallow route underneath whether it's the running back releasing out of the backfield or they'll go four verts with the running back as part of the four verts and then release a crosser underneath which is also tough to defend you know so they've got some things that they can do um scheme wise to attack these kinds of things and let's not forget the emergence of Jacob Hollister is, again, yeah. something I hear about because Patriots just basically couldn't stay healthy, so let him go. He's become a trusted member of that circle of trust. They had that little play similar to the Gronk play early in their touchdown drive in Super Bowl 53, where they go play action his side of the field and they sort of leak him. It's not a throwback design, but it's the same side of the field. This is a play they ran against Arizona. You know, he's looking for Hollister in key moments. We saw that at the end of the San Francisco game. And so there are a number of weapons that they have. There's a number of scheme things that they can do. And at the end of the day, you're talking about a guy that has been there, that has done that, that has won a chip and can beat you with his legs. Mm. It, it's a tough recipe to get ready for.
1: Mark, how important do you think is the the playoff experience factor for a quarterback? Because, I mean, there's small sample sizes to deal with. There's always context of different situations, but it, it, it's never really looked great. For a quarterback playing in his first NFL game, maybe it helps that the Eagles have been to the playoffs before without Wentz and they have a bunch of players that have that experience. Because I do believe my personal opinion is it's not always on the quarterback. It's on the team, too. Once you reach like a certain level of experience and the bar is kind of low for me as far as playoff experience goes, then it really kind of evens out for everyone. But do the Seahawks have the advantage over the Eagles because their quarterback has been there, done that?
0: I mean, I, I think they might have an edge, but it's marginal at best. Mm. And another thing to keep in mind, and we hear this, you know, cliche thrown out every so often when we get to the playoffs is the Eagles have been in the playoffs since early December. Right. You know, if you think about it that way, like they had must-win games and you could say, oh, you know, games against the Giants twice in Washington. Yeah, well, that Cowboys game was basically a playoff game. That was win or go home. Yeah. You know, and and so, you know, there have been big game moments before. And let's not forget, we're talking about a, a guy in Carson Wentz that won two national championships in college. And say what you want about, you know, the FCS level. Look, he had a comeback in the junior year against Illinois State, yeah. where he made some gutsy, courageous throws. Again, that aggression concept with him as a junior. He gets hurt, comes back as a senior with a broken bone in his wrist, wins another national championship. He's been in big games before, maybe not this stage, but every stage is a big game when you're talking about playoffs or championship games and things like that. So you know, I'm not too worried about it. Yeah, maybe the experience is more for Wilson because he's been there and done that, and You know, there are things that will happen that won't really phase him, but it's a home playoff game. Every team has an equal shot right now. And this is a guy and a quarterback that has been winning playoff games per se, you know, since November. So,
1: So, Mark, I'm going to have you make a prediction, but I'm not going to have you make it on the Eagles and the Seahawks. Oh, dear God. I see that your your confidence lately has been wavering. It's been shaken in in the New England Patriots, and they (sighs) go up against the Tennessee Titans. Who do you think? When's that game? It's funny.
0: I was on with our mutual friend, Buck, Buck Riesland, um Love out him. in Nashville. Love him. We spoke highly, glowingly of you, of oh, course, at, at the intro of that show. No, legitimately we did. We first apologized for perhaps unleashing you on the world, but then <laughs> we sort of came to the conclusion that it was a good thing for all involved that everybody knows the Michael name, Michael kissed. But no, I, I, as I told Buck, look, the Patriots had a must-win game in front of them against the Miami Dolphins and Ryan Fitzmagic, a game that they needed to secure a bye to get healthy, and they lost it. Mm. And, you know, you could say that, you know, the defense only gave up two touchdowns, Brady threw a horrific, disastrous, might have been the worst interception of his career on that pick six. But the defense had a four-point lead, five minutes or so to go uh, against Ryan Fitzpatrick, and they let him go right down the field. Yeah. And so my confidence level in this Patriots team is at, I don't want to say an all-time low. It was actually lower at times this season, but it's pretty darn low. Like, do I think that they'll win this game? Yeah. Would I take the Titans at the points? Yeah. Mm. I think it's like a 24-20 kind of game if they win it. But then you're looking at at Kansas City and then if things hold true, at Baltimore. Yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) So I, I do think that maybe... This time a week from now, more likely this time two weeks from now, we are talking about the end of the Brady era. Does he go to the Chargers and play for the Chargers? Does he go to Chicago? Like the panic level is, is high in New England about the end of the era. Are we talking about Jared Stidham? Are we talking tank for Trevor? All I know is this. There are going to be a lot of people listening to Patriots podcasts over the next couple of weeks here because of the panic that will ensue shortly. And so uh, my family will get to eat and my marriage will continue to be fine. (laughs) But it's shaky ground at best, my friend.
1: Yeah. I I hope that that lasts as long as possible because there is nothing like playoff clicks. And downloads.
0: Well, <laughs> playoff clicks and downloads are the best, man. I amazing. mean, we do love the gentle listeners, but let's face it, like there are people that tune out until now. Right. And then they tune in <laughs> and then they can't get enough of it. So we, <laughs> we do love that stuff. But look, draft season clicks are good too. Yeah. Because let's let's face it, you know, the other big stations, like especially New England, ninety eight five, the sports hub, or you know, WEI, they'll be talking Celtics and Bruins and Red Sox.
1: Yeah. But the Sco show, baby. Sco Show. You gotta but listen draft to Draft Talk. Pat's, 24-7. Pat's Pulfit. They'll be bringing it to you. Mark will be bringing Sooner it to Sooner than me. we hoped, but yeah. <laughs> so that's going to do it for the QB's Go Show episode 47, the first one, first edition of the QB's Go Show of 2020. We are so glad that you joined us for this journey, and uh, we're going to be bringing it to you all year long, baby. We're going to be doing the thing.
0: Doing the thing. Live from Mobile, too.
1: Live from Mobile. We're going to be there talking about everything going on there at the Senior Bowl. That's only a few weeks away. Mark, I, I can't know. wait. It's going to be. can't
0: wait. QB show live from Feeds.
1: We are. With special guest appearances. 100% going to have the Yankee flu at some point. At some point. That week. So you're going to hear a very hungover QB Sco show <laughs> during that week. And we apologize in advance. But that's going <laughs> to yeah. do it for this one. We thank you for joining us. We will catch you next time and hopefully – we're previewing the next NFC quarterback that the Eagles have to chew through. We can only hope 2020 baby, let's do it. Eagles in 4. Fly Eagles fly.